Please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. We're going to continue our study in Matthew this morning. Uh, Blake probably told you, but over the next couple weeks, we're doing a little rotation. Blake's at Creekside this week, and Matt Morton will be here next week, and then uh, after that, Blake will be back. And we'll continue this morning in Matthew, chapter 18. A few years ago, I ran across a blog. It's entitled, The Honest Toddler. And uh, it's actually written by a mom through the perspective of a toddler. In in one of her blogs, she creates this chart. It's a translation chart of what a toddler really means when he says, I'm sorry. Okay? So this is what a toddler really means when he says, I'm sorry. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I got caught. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I didn't run faster. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I didn't eat the evidence. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean... I'm sorry I didn't hit him hard enough to make him afraid to tattle. Uh, Tristy and I realized when our our kids were little uh, that we didn't want them to say, I'm sorry. We wanted them to say, please forgive me, and I forgive you. We wanted them to learn what forgiveness is actually all about. The, the, The depth of that transaction of seeking forgiveness and granting forgiveness, not merely saying, I'm sorry. And this is a hard thing for toddlers to learn. Uh, It happens to actually be kind of a hard thing for adults to learn as well. I want you to listen to this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. He said this, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith, by which they meant, are you crazy? Jesus, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding. Seven times a day? Seriously, are you nuts? I, I, I gotta tell you, uh, every time that I preach, my wife tells me, Brian, that was your best message ever, okay? And uh, if you know my wife, she really means that, right? D- genuinely, sincerely. And, you know, I know it's not possible that every message gets better and better and better, but in her heart of hearts, she feels like, oh, that, that was your best ever. Absolutely your best. And so uh, this morning, um, you're, you're, you're going to hear my best message or not. I mean, maybe not, you know, that's, she'll tell me it was the best. Um, it may not be, but uh, for some of you, it's going to be the most important. Maybe the most important message you've heard in your life, maybe the most important you've just heard in a long time, Because some of you have been wounded really deeply, and you've held on to that, and you need to learn to release it. Others of you are saying, you know, I I really haven't been wounded that deeply. So my word of encouragement to you this morning is you will. So you're going to, so get out your notebook and take notes for the future, because it will happen to you. You will be wounded in such a way that you really wrestle with releasing it. You you hold on to it, and it begins to, to tear you up. So we're going to talk about forgiveness this morning. It's a topic, actually, that Jesus introduced in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he began to develop it even more so throughout his ministry. Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray then in this way. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus, in fact, will talk a lot about forgiveness through the course of his ministry. And what I want to look at this morning is this passage in Matthew 18 where where he really explains what forgiveness is all about. So I want you to read with me Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse uh, 21. 
Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and he said to him, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother? How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, a little bit of context. In Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that you should forgive someone twice. If somebody sins against you, forgive them. If they sin again, forgive a second time. Maybe three, never four. Right? Maybe three times, but never four. Four is ridiculous. Four is beyond. You don't get four. So when Peter says, Jesus, I'm willing to go to seven, Peter's making in his mind this magnanimous gesture that he's willing to go up to seven times. And Jesus says to him, Peter, I say to you, 70 times seven. So what is Jesus saying? That when you hit 491, you're done? No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying forgiveness by its nature is unlimited. It is without bounds. Forgiveness is without bounds. Read with me verse 23. For this reason, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell down to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt." Matthew chapter 18 is a parable of the kingdom. Jesus told a lot of these stories that he made up, which illustrate what life is like in the realm of God or in the kingdom of God. In in Jesus' parables, the king is the heavenly father. And since Jesus is his anointed representative, the ruler, Jesus has the authority to help the people understand or translate or interpret what God is like. And he says, this is what forgiveness is like in the kingdom of God. And as he tells the parable, his intention is that Peter would see himself in one of the characters, that we would see ourselves in one of the characters. And remember, Peter's question is this, how often shall I forgive? And where Jesus starts is, well, rather than addressing how often you should forgive, let's talk about how much you need to be forgiven. Let's start there, Peter. And he says two things. First, we are, as the king's slaves, graciously forgiven. We are graciously forgiven. Notice what he says here. Verse 24. When he had begun to settle accounts, there was one who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, this is probably one of the most relevant details in the story. 10,000 talents is a lot of money. Probably this slave is a tax collector for the king. He had a crew of servants or slaves who went out and collected taxes. And maybe this one hadn't collected enough taxes, or maybe he had taken out a loan. That's the other word for debt here. And he, he had amounted, uh, amassed this, this enormous debt. In fact, let me put it in context for you. Uh, in Jesus' day, a denarius was one day's wage for the common laborer. A talent was 6,000 denarii. A talent was actually the largest uh, monetary denomination, right? So Jesus is using the largest monetary denomination, a talent, and he's using the word myriad or 10,000, which was the largest number that was used in the Greek language. So largest denomination, largest number, 
10,000 is a myriad. 10,000 talents is roughly 60 million days wages or 300 tons of silver. Again, to put this in context, this is probably more money than was in circulation in the entire nation of Egypt in Jesus' day. So when Jesus pulls out this number, what he's saying is this slave owed gazillions of dollars. His debt was almost unimaginable. Really, it'd be nearly impossible to amass this much debt. This is what the slave owed. He could never repay this debt. No matter how much he promised, he could never repay this debt. So what is the only recourse that the king has? Verse 25. Since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Again, let me put this in context. The average slave was worth a tenth of a talent. So if we take this man and his wife and we assume that they had eight children, all together when they're sold, they make up one talent. He owes 10,000 talents. In other words, the king can't actually recover the debt. That's the first principle in forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and he prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. There are actually three words in Greek for forgiveness. Two of them occur here in verse 26. The slave fell to the ground, excuse me, verse 27. The Lord of that slave felt compassion. He released him. He forgave him the debt. The idea is that one is set free. Why did the king forgive? Because the slave promised to repay? (laughs) No, it was an empty promise. He couldn't. Why did he release him? Why did, he, why did he let the debt go? Well, because that's, that's who the king is. But it says he was moved with compassion. That's a word that describes his inward parts. That's the nature of the king. In a sense, he's waiting for an opportunity to release a debt. That's the Greek word. Let it go. Send his slave out free. It's the same idea in Hebrew. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he, has he removed our debts from us. The king, in other words, absorbs the cost himself. He can't actually recover the payment, so he ends up paying himself. Why? Because the money's gone. Right? The money is gone. That's the nature of forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly, men and women, to the forgiver. It's always costly to the forgiver. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Men and women, that's really the essence of the gospel message. Our sins, his body. Our sins, his body. When he hung on the cross, there were no sins that he was paying for himself. He was taking our debt into himself. That's what the gospel is about. God releases us from payment because he takes payment requirements on himself. I want you to understand the implications of this. God is declaring to you that you are so valuable that he will pay the price for your sins. God is declaring to you that you are so valuable that he will surrender what is most valuable to him, that is, his son. Catch this. So this is the creator of the universe. He made all things. He owns all things. So he's the only one who actually knows what things are worth. 
His evaluation of stuff is the only evaluation that really matters. And he says to you, you are so valuable that I will give what I have previously valued most, the life of my very precious son. That's what you are worth to me. Christians, we should never, ever have a poor self-image because God says that's what you are worth. That's what you're worth. No matter what anyone else says about you or to you, the creator of the universe says that's what I value you at. Now, there's a corollary principle to that. If that's how much God values you, that's also how much God values the people who wound you. And that's how much God values the people that you wound. Because that's how much God values the only creatures that are made in his image, men and women, who tend to beat each other up a lot. And then when we extend forgiveness, we are valuing people the same way that God values people. Keep reading with me here, chapter 18, verse 28. But that slave went out, and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. Remember, we're, we're supposed to um, connect with one of the characters in this little story, right? And at first you go, okay, well, I can connect with the slave because he owed a great debt and I owed a great debt and I can relate to that. But then we read a little further in the story. We go, man, this guy's really a jerk. I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to relate to that character because, you know, he's owed a hundred denarii, which is like three to four months wages, which if these guys are, are tax collectors, he could, he could actually make that up pretty quickly. But the slave says, no way. And he grabs him out in the street and he's, he's shaking him and choking me. And this is a, this is a scene, right? Ah, give me what you owe. He's shaking the dude, shaking him. He says, the guy falls down out of his grasp and says exactly the same words. Pay, I'll pay you back. Just have mercy on me. Give me a little time. And he grabs him and drags him and throws him into prison. We go, gosh, I don't think I'm that bad. Pay back what you owe. Verse 31, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Yikes. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, remember, um, it's a parable of the kingdom, and he's saying this is how life works within the kingdom. My father, he is the king, and you are his slaves. And then if you don't forgive... In this manner, you will not be forgiven. What is, what is he saying? Is he saying that you will, in fact, lose your salvation? God's forgiven you freely in Jesus, but then if you don't turn around and give freely, you can't be saved. You can't get eternal life or you're going to forfeit eternal life. No, that, that's not what he's saying. Okay? That's not what he's saying at all. Um, I want you to notice two words here. Okay? Two words here. The first is brother. Okay? He says, brother. What he's talking about is life within the family of God. It started in chapter 18, verse 1. This is about relationships within the family. 
Okay? But if you'll notice, uh, this is really pretty severe language. Look at verse 34 again. He says, His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. This is nearly exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions either. But this is about life within the family. This is about life within the followers of Jesus, his disciples. All of chapter 18 is about this. He says, you know, if a brother sins, I want you to go to him and rebuke him in private. If he doesn't respond to that, we'll take two along. And if he doesn't respond to that, we'll bring it before the assembly. Why? So So that they can apply a pressure on him that will lead him to repentance and restoration within the family. Okay, so notice two words. The first is brother. He's talking about life within the family. So let me make a distinction here between having a relationship with God and enjoying intimacy with God. Okay? Or relationship with God and fellowship with God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John says this. I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you in his name's sake. John says, look, I'm writing to you who are part of the family. God is our heavenly father and you are his children and you are sons and daughters. You're also brothers and sisters. And the reason I'm writing this letter is because you have been forgiven. Your debt has been paid. It's been paid in full by the blood of Jesus. When he died on the cross, he was bearing the weight of your sins. And the moment that you believe in Jesus for that first time, you take advantage of the fact that that debt has been paid. Retribution has been overcome because Jesus paid it all, all of it. And the moment that you believe, what happens, even if you don't, you're not aware of that moment you believe, right? Because most of us aren't. What happens is slowly, gradually, progressively, we become convinced that Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for us. And you know, there's a day we kind of realize that. And maybe we pray a prayer or we walk an aisle, whatever. But what happens that moment that we become convinced, aware or not, is that God takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and puts us into the kingdom of light. He takes us out of a family that is in rebellion against God and puts us into his own family. He becomes our heavenly father. We become sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. And once we're in the family of God, we always belong to the family of God. And you can't be removed because God is faithful, not because we're faithful. And so John says, the reason I'm writing this exhortation to you is because your sins have been, in fact, forgiven. But here's the problem. Once you're in the family, sometimes brothers and sisters aren't really very nice to each other. And they wrong one another. And they even wrong people who are outside of the family of God. And they need to go confess that and fix that. Why? So that there will be harmony or intimacy in the relationships with God and with others. That's why he says, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice, he said your sins have been forgiven past tense, but your sins need to be forgiven present tense. Because in the present world, there are consequences to those sins, right? The the past consequence has been removed by the death of Christ, but the present consequence, we need to fix those relationships. So John says, hey, don't lie to yourself and don't lie to me and say you don't sin, because you do. So what do you do with it when you do sin? Confess, which means literally in Greek, say the same thing. God says that's sin, I need to say it's sin too. 
And the moment that I confess and acknowledge that it's sin, God says, I forgive. Why? Because he's faithful. I promised. And he's righteous. I already paid for it in Jesus. To cleanse you, present tense, and restore intimacy with him and in your earthly relationships. So what Jesus is talking about here is brothers and sisters in our relationships. Now, the second word that you need to notice is the word torment. (laughs) Torment. What is he talking about? In Jesus' day, there were professional tormentors. If you owe someone a debt and you can't repay and it reaches a substantial level, they have a legal right, in some cases, to turn you over to a professional debt collection agency. And that person can take you and they can put you into hard labor. And you may not get fed much and you may have sleepless nights and you may be in a prison cell. And in fact, if you're not working hard enough, they have the right even to torture you. Jesus is talking about a literal historical type of situation that takes place. And I think he's using it as a metaphor for the torment that we bring upon ourselves when we refuse to forgive. So I ask you, have you ever known someone who holds on to a grudge? If you have, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because people who won't forgive as they get older and older and older, they become really shriveled up, nasty, yucky people. Because they're unwilling to release the debt. They live in torment. When I first moved back to College Station, I used to go every week and preach at a nursing home. Give a little chapel service, and I would go ahead of time, and I would pick up the residents, and I got to know them, and I got to know their stories, And I discovered that in the nursing home, there were only two kinds of people. There were joyful people and bitter people. That's it, right? They had self-selected by this point in their lives, and they were joyful or they were bitter. And what I noticed was interesting to me was that it really didn't matter what their life's circumstances had been up to this point or even the suffering that they were going through right now, whether or not they were joyful or bitter. What determined this pathway was whether or not they were willing to forgive, and there were some people in the nursing home who were, who were under really horrible, difficult, physical circumstances, and they had lived through a lot of suffering in their lives, and yet even the ones who sometimes couldn't even speak were joyful, and you could feel the joy from them. And there were others who, they may have even been in better physical shape, and their lives had not been as hard, but man, they were nasty. They were rough to be around. And the pathway was chosen based upon whether they were willing to forgive or not forgive. About two weeks ago, there was a, an obituary that was published in a Houston newspaper. And uh, one of our, our members uh, sent me this obituary. It's for a man named Leslie Ray uh, Popeye, was his nickname, Charping. I'm going to read you just a little bit of his obituary. Just, I'm just going to read you segments because you can't endure the whole thing. Okay? He was born in Galveston on November 20th, 1942. He passed away January 30th, 2017, which was 29 years longer than expected and much longer than he deserved. Oh, this is written by his children. He leaves behind two relieved children, along with six grandchildren and countless other victims, including an ex-wife, relatives, friends, neighbors, doctors, nurses, and random strangers. At a young age, Leslie quickly became a model example of bad parenting. Leslie was surprisingly intelligent. However, he lacked ambition and motivation to do anything more than being reckless, wasteful, 
squandering the family's savings and fantasizing about get-rich-quick schemes. Leslie's life served no other obvious purpose. He did not contribute to society or serve his community, and he possessed no redeeming qualities. He will be missed only for what he never did, being a loving husband, father, and a good friend. No services will be held. There will be no prayers for eternal peace and no apologies to the family he tortured. Wow. Wow, man. You know, not only do I not want that written about me, right? I don't want to be the person who would write that kind of thing. I mean, I, I, I have known people, they've been wronged, and the person who wronged them has been dead 20 years, and they're still controlled by it. They're still bitter. They're still angry. Their soul is still shriveling up. Listen to these words from Frederick Buchner. He wrote a short book. It's called Wishful Thinking. It's, uh, it's like short snippets on theology. Really wonderful little book. And he has a, a section on uh, anger and forgiveness. He said this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. That's torment. That's torment, men and women. On the other hand, a man named Lewis Smedes wrote, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. So Jesus says, forgive, but forgive from the heart. Okay, that's, that's genuine righteousness that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive from the heart, because if you're just faking it, it's going to leak out. It's going to leak out, and it's going to poison your entire life. So Peter asks the question, how often should I forgive? And Jesus says, you know, really, forgiveness needs to be limitless. Let me illustrate, Peter. Let me illustrate why this is so important. The first reason you, you must learn to forgive is, Peter, you don't want to become that kind of person. Avoid the torment. Second, we must learn to forgive so that we can represent our Heavenly Father. What is God like? Remember, this is a parable of the kingdom. What's he like? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're told he causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. This is the very nature of who God is. Or as Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, be merciful exactly like your heavenly Father is merciful. That's his nature. So cause your rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Cause your sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Because this is what God is like. And if you want to be sons and daughters, that is, if you want to reflect the very nature of this family, then this is what you need to be like. This is how you represent God because this is who God is and this is what God is like. And men, and women, that's why the church is here. That's it. So, question is then, how do we do it? How do we become forgiving people? I'm going to give you uh, five application points and I'm going to challenge you at the end to write these down. So you might as well just start right now because uh, I want to challenge you to, to practice these this week. Okay, so five application points. The first is this. Remember your own debt. In my opinion... This is the starting place for forgiveness. You owe a debt that you cannot pay back. And Jesus forgave you. Colossians chapter 3. Bear with one another, forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. 
Just as the Lord forgave you in exactly the same way that the Lord forgave you, and because the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, what's interesting is in uh, the beginning of this verse, it says, bear with one another. That literally means put up with each other. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that these people you need to forgive, you're going to necessarily even like or enjoy, but you put up with one another. Even when you have a complaint, that is, you may have something that is justifiably wrong that was done against you, but you choose to forgive anyway. Why? Only because God in Jesus Christ has forgiven you. That is the only reason that you choose to forgive. That's the starting place, men and women. Not because forgiveness is deserved. Okay, I want you to catch this. We don't forgive because the other person deserves forgiveness. Forgiveness, in a sense, covers that part that's undeserved. Let me illustrate. Say I owe my friend Lance 500 bucks. And I don't pay, and I don't pay, and Lance keeps going, come on, you owe me money. I need my money. And I go, yeah, I'll get you, I'll get you, I got you covered, Lance. I'll get to it eventually. And he asks and he asks, and I don't give it, I don't give it. Finally, he just kind of wears me out. So I write him a check, there's $500. Now, has Lance forgiven me? No. I paid the debt. So it's not forgiveness, because the debt is paid. Forgiveness covers that part that can't be paid. Forgiveness covers the part of the debt that that can't be paid. The other person can't pay you back. The other person may not actually ever even acknowledge the debt or ask for forgiveness. You just forgive, starting place, because you acknowledge your own debt. That the debt that you owe is larger than you can repay. And I think sometimes for churchy people like us, particularly people who uh, grew up maybe in a Christian home, it's hard to get to this point. Because we look around at the rest of the world and we go, <laughs> better there, better there, better there. I'm, I'm better than, you know, really most of these people who are around me in the culture out there. My debt's not that great. But the fact is this. Any sin, a single sin, because God is absolutely and perfectly holy, separates you forever from a heavenly father. Another fact is this, apart from the grace of God in your life, which may have come in the form of a wonderful family and all kinds of opportunities that were given to you that you didn't deserve, tools that were put in your toolbox that you didn't place there, just because of that, your life has has run this course. But apart from God's blessings and grace in your life, you must learn to understand and acknowledge that there is no sin that you are incapable of committing. None. No, no matter how much you shower up and do your hair and dress up nice on a Sunday morning, and you may think you're relatively better than others, and I think I'm relatively better than others, it doesn't matter. You owe a debt that you can't repay, just like every other person on the face of the earth. And this is the starting point for forgiveness. I acknowledge the debt that I owe that God forgave me. Second, release the debt that another owes you to a just judge. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter wrote, While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept on entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And then Peter goes on in chapter 4 and he applies that principle to us. He says, when you're suffering injustice from this world around you, I want you to entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In other words, Trust the just judge, right? Turn it, turn it over to him. 
trust that he really knows the perfect form of justice and the perfect timing of justice, and that he will, in fact, because he's created a a morally ordered universe, he will set all things right. And you can trust him to take up the account that is owed to you. Turn it over to a just judge. There are, in fact, there are three words in Greek for forgiveness. Two of them show up right here in verse 27. It says, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and consequently he released him. That's the first word. And he forgave him, right? He released him and he forgave him. Both of those words have the connotation of sending something away, right? A slave, the purchase price is is paid for his freedom and he's sent away free. The debt is released. It's the same idea in Hebrew. As far as the east is from the west, so, west, so far has he removed our debts from us. And, and it's not that we're pretending that no debt was owed. The grievance or complaint may be legitimate. What we're saying is we're turning it over to a divine collection agency and saying we trust God to get the right form of justice at the right time. So I remember my own debt and then I release the debt that is owed to me to a just and good righteous Heavenly Father. Third, seize the opportunity. Seize the opportunity. Uh, James put it like this, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter uh, lots of bad people that do harm to you. Right? <laughs> this is another, it's another form of trial. And saying embrace it. Why? Because in the process, you become transformed. All right? Simplest terms, you can't learn to become a forgiving person unless you're wronged, right? I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't really have a, a character transformation where you become this open giving person by reading a book about forgiveness. Sorry, I wish, I wish most elements of sanctification were like that, but it doesn't work that way. You, you begin to build that muscle of grace and mercy and forgiveness as you are wronged. And so God will, in fact, allow you To be wrong, because he wants to develop this fundamental character quality of becoming a forgiving person. So this is, in fact, a moment. It's an opportunity. It is a bizarre gift from God to help you become this kind of person. So when you're old and gray, you have walked this path of forgiveness, and you are one of these joyful, giving people who are wonderful to be around rather than bitter and shriveled up and horrible to be around kind of people. This is an opportunity, first for you, but also for all those around you, right? God is going to give you opportunities to forgive. Why? So that people around you can learn what forgiveness is. Particularly, I would argue, the world that doesn't know Jesus, because, you know, they can't imagine. What, so what's, what's this invisible God like that you're talking about? And this, this man, he was a Jewish carpenter, and he lived 2,000 years ago, and you say, paid a debt for my sin. I, I don't, that makes no sense to me. But when they wrong you, and you release the debt. Or when they see someone else wrong you and you release the debt. And you put that in context and help them understand, I'd I'd only do that, not because it's deserved, but because that's how I was forgiven. They begin to see this really beautiful, tangible picture of the way that God has loved us in Jesus Christ. There was a woman named Marganita Lansky. She was a a journalist, novelist, in her day, pretty well-known secular humanist. And right before she died, 1988, she gave an interview. And in the interview, she said this. What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. 
Men and women, the, the world actually needs to experience forgiveness, not just be told about forgiveness. And so God will, in fact, allow you to be wronged so that when you're stepped on, this fragrance of Christ comes out. He sees the opportunity. Fourth, give grace. Give grace. Third word in Greek for forgiveness is the word charizomai. It's the same root as the word charis, which means favor, right? Unconditional favor, blessing, good. Uh, same as Hebrew word chain. It means to, to bless. And Jesus says, when your enemies hurt you and harm you, bless them. Don't curse them. G- give a blessing. Do good for those who hurt you. As one man said, you will know that forgiveness has begun when you recall those who hurt you and you feel the power to wish them well. Right? I've not just released the debt, but now I actually have power to not be angry and bitter, but to, to seek your good, to seek your blessing. That's power. Now, the irony is this. If I don't forgive, then that person still has power over me. Even if they've been dead and in the grave 20 years, they might still have power over me because I haven't released it. Charles Stanley said this, by refusing to forgive and by waiting for restitution to be made, individuals allow their personal growth to hinge on the decision of others they dislike to begin with. <laughs> you catch that? That's the irony. person I don't really even like to begin with now has power over me because I won't release it. But when I release it, then I have power. And I know that I'm really experiencing the grace of God in my life when I long to see them blessed. Now, let me make a distinction for you here. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. If forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation, forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. Right? For there to be reconciliation, there has to be a restoration of trust. Usually both parties have to move. Sometimes one party has to move a lot further, but, but they're not the same thing. You, you must forgive just because God has forgiven you and because you don't want to become that kind of person who doesn't forgive. But there may be people in your life that you, you can't or shouldn't trust. Right? They haven't changed. They haven't, they haven't grown. They haven't become trustworthy kinds of people. And so it wouldn't be wise of you to entrust yourself to them. You have to release the debt, but maybe you shouldn't trust yet. Or maybe you should. Okay, I, I, don't, I don't know the particulars of any of your individual situation. I know as I begin to talk about forgiveness, probably somebody or many people come up in your mind and you begin to think about these people and it may be that these people are are not trustworthy. You shouldn't let them too close to you. Or maybe, and I'm just saying maybe, but you listen to the voice of the Spirit. Maybe God's Spirit is saying to you, I want you to take a risk anyway. Maybe God is challenging you to drop your guard a little bit because often we don't forgive either because we're afraid we'll be wronged again or because we're proud. We don't really understand how deeply we need forgiveness. And the result is we don't drop that barrier. And so I'm just, I'm just challenging you, maybe in your situation, God is saying that the good that you can do would be to drop that guard just a little. Or not. I mean, there, some of you come from you know, situations where you were abused and different horrible things were done to you and this person is, is not, should not be trusted. I get that. 
But often God is saying, take a small step of faith and trust me to be your protection. Move just a little bit toward reconciliation. Maybe the good that you can do is just to pray for that person. Or maybe there's good that you can do to serve that person. Or maybe the good that you can do would be just to make a small movement toward reconciliation. And doing good. That's power. right? Paul said, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Now, fifth principle. Repeat. Okay? Wash, rinse, repeat. Okay, do it over and over again. Just keep doing this, okay? Keep doing this over and over again. Because right, practice makes perfect, right? No. Practice makes permanent. So, if you become that person who rehearses the wrong and how you're going to get payment back, you're going to become that kind of person. That will become permanent in you. And you, I, I'm, I'm sure that 98% of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You imagine that person in your mind, and as you begin to imagine that person in your mind, you imagine that interaction. Man, if we just happened to cross paths, right? I know they don't come to Southwood, but what if they just did, just this one time, and we're walking out, they're going to one service, and I'm going to another. We cross paths in the parking lot. Man, I already have the script rehearsed. I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this. Man, I'm, oh, this, I got Oh, that's even better. I'd say it that way, right? You, just, you, you know what you're going to drill them down. You go, well, you know what? I don't need to say anything. I'm just going to give them that look. And when I give that look, they're just going to feel shame and guilt just coming upon them. And as you think about that person, you're rehearsing it. You're fantasizing interactions that could never possibly ever take place. You know, maybe even that person that's dead and gone. You go, well, if they came out of the grave, I'd say this and that. I, you know, I mean, I'd trash them. They would know and they would feel the weight of the wrong that they did to me. And practice makes permanent. And that's the person you become. Or... You remember the debt that is owed to you. And then you say, oh yes, but I owe a debt that I couldn't repay that Jesus paid for me. And I begin to practice and I begin to rehearse releasing the debt. God, you take care of this one. (laughs) So if I try to take care of it on earth, on my own, I'm just going to mess it up. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for me to become the kind of person I really want to be. This is an opportunity for me to show someone in a really tangible way, this is who my God is. This is what he's really like. And you can be forgiven, and you need to be forgiven. And I can turn around and I begin to bless, maybe in just small ways at first, but I look for opportunities to do good and do good. And every time Satan brings it to my mind, instead of rehearsing the punishment that I will give to that person, I rehearse the debt that I owe. I release the debt. I grab a hold of the opportunity. I give more grace every time. And maybe Satan throws it up into your mind every three seconds because it's just so raw. It's so fresh. So you go through this cycle every three seconds. Or, or maybe you stretch it out and then you get to three minutes and then there's three days and three weeks. And because you're becoming this forgiving person, it's just not coming up as much. But every time it does, you release the debt. And you become this person who's like God. What a beautiful thing. A great story is told about Clara Barton. She was the founder of the American Red Cross. And one time a friend came to her and reminded her of a wrong that had been done to Clara. And she appeared to not remember. And so her friend said, don't you remember when this person did wrong to you? And her response was this, I distinctly remember forgetting it. 
<laughs> Did she forget it, forget it? No. You don't forget things, but she chose to release the debt. And so she became that kind of person. Ephesians 4 verse 32 says this. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we have courage and humility to become this kind of person. Sons and daughters who, who reflect your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Courageous people who are willing to let you collect the debts that may be owed to us. Uh, humble people that walk before you, acknowledging first our own debt. And Father, as we do so, I pray that we would become a transformed community, that we would, we would look really very different. And as a result, that the outside world would watch the way that we interact with one another. They'd watch the way that we interact with them. And they would say, if something really is different, they'd be drawn then to Jesus, the only one who can forgive them of their debts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So God bless you. Have a great week for giving. <laughs>